you will be surprised at how far we get in Hebrews today, I guarantee you. This will be our 15th Bible study in the book of Hebrews this morning. Are you there? Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for preserving your word for us in written form. That was so kind of you, Lord, that you inspired men to write your word, the very words of God, that you've preserved it throughout the centuries that we might have it on our laps today. Thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, we here in America count it a great privilege that we have your word and the whole word before us. We know that there's brothers and sisters of ours today around the world who are, number one, worshiping you in secret because they're threatened by the government, who don't have Bibles today, whole villages passing around just a single sheet or a single book or just a little fragment. But here we are today with the Bible and a multitude of Bibles. And Lord, if we're not thankful for that, correct us. Because your word is wonderful. It is living and active. It's a very expression of who you are. Indeed, Jesus Christ, you are called the word in the word. And in it we discover you. And we commune with you. And we learn more about you. And we're challenged and we're chastened and we're encouraged and we're exhilarated as we come to your word. We thank you for it, Lord. And we ask that this morning you'd make us very sharp when it comes to your word. That we would handle accurately the word of truth because we are living in days that are characterized by deception. And we're in a week in the church where we are celebrating, we celebrate every week, but a huge week where we're celebrating the person and the work of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and the salvation that he accomplished for us by dying a substitutionary death upon the cross. We rejoice in that this week. But Lord, we realize that there's many people that don't recognize the true Jesus, that have fabricated other Jesuses. You told us that there would be days like these and we're living in them. So we're just asking that you'd raise up an army here that wields the sword properly by the power of the Holy Spirit, the sword being the Word of God, and that your Word, Christ, would dwell richly in us. We ask together that you please help me communicate your truths in a way that is true to what you've said, that exalts the person of Jesus Christ, and connects with the people you've brought to listen. Holy Spirit, help me to communicate in such a way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been studying Hebrews chapter 1, we have been getting a wonderful picture of who Jesus is. After having studied this chapter now for a few months, I'm convinced that this is the greatest chapter in all of Scripture when it comes to the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. That's my opinion. We've been having a wonderful picture painted for us of his true identity. And it's important that we've done this. We started out with a broad context of realizing why it was important for these frightened Hebrew Christians when they initially received the word, because it was to them that it was first written. But it is God's word, so it's also to us. And, and so we're narrowing it down now, beginning to realize that it's just as important for us that we have a right concept of who Jesus is, maybe even more so because we're living in a day where there is more misinformation, more distortion, and more perversion when it comes to the identity of Jesus Christ than maybe any other time in history. We're going to look at this morning, before we get to our verses starting in verse 8, we're going to look at this morning two popular views of Jesus Christ that have surfaced within the media, and then two cultish views that are big within our community. 
two popular views of Jesus Christ. This first view was found in an article from Reuters News Source online recently. And the title of the article was, Who is Jesus? Well, he's three people, says Deepak Chopra. You guys have heard of Deepak Chopra. He's the author of more than 50 books, and he's the head of the spiritual group Alliance for a New Humanity. And he wrote a book that came out last month entitled The Third Jesus. He says that there's three Jesuses, that there's a sketchy historical figure, and then he says that there's the abstract theological creation, so he would accuse us of, and then he says that he's discovered the real Jesus, the third Jesus, who is someone that discovered for himself the highest level of enlightenment, which Chopra calls God consciousness. So he says in an interview about this book, quote, he says, I want to offer the possibility that Jesus was truly, as he proclaimed, a savior, Chopra wrote. Not the savior, not the one and only Son of God. Rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. Notice that this very popular spiritual figure has denied outright the identity of Jesus Christ. He said there that he is not the Savior. He's not the only Son of God, but merely someone that attained to the highest level of enlightenment. And then it says, quote, Jesus spent his brief adult life describing it, teaching it, and passing it on to future generations, Chopra says. Jesus intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. It's not what Jesus said. That is a lie about Jesus Christ. This ought to infuriate the Bible-believing Christian. That is a fabricated, outright lie about the person, the identity, the claims, and the mission of the Jesus Christ that we worship. Now, Chopra would say, don't worry about it. That the Jesus of Eastern spirituality and Western spirituality are the same one. He says, quote, leave aside the differences in the language of it. They are all talking about the same thing. No, we are not. We are not talking about the same thing. Chopra has written a book about a different Jesus. He's very popular, very influential, even in American spirituality right now, and he is pushing a different Jesus. Now we go from Chopra to Oprah. Yeah. Oprah Winfrey is, of course, very influential in the nation, extremely influential. And she has adopted a course in miracles. Have you heard of it? It's been around for a long time, since the 60s. She has adopted something called a course in miracles. She is pushing the book and subsequent books, rather, on her show. On her show, there are daily teachings from a course in miracles. She's bought a thousand copies of one of the subsequent books that a lady wrote about A Course in Miracles to give them away. She's pushing it on a radio show, on her TV show, and on websites. Oprah Winfrey is pushing this spirituality on Americans. Oprah Winfrey and A Course in Miracles. I went to a website that was for Oprah Winfrey's radio show, and I found this quote on there. The Course in Miracles is a direct message to you from out of time, lovingly expressed by the whole resurrected mind of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Okay. 
That's a big claim. Here's where we get A Course in Miracles. In 1965, an atheistic psychologist from Columbia University began to channel a spirit. Channel a spirit. Your little antennas ought to be going up because the Bible condemns that. Begin to channel a spirit that she claimed was Jesus. And over the next seven years, she produced thousands of pages of writings that she said were the direct words of Jesus to her. Here's what she says, quote, Jesus and other enlightened masters are our evolutionary elder brothers. She continues saying, the mutation, the enlightened ones, including Jesus, show the rest of us our evolutionary potential. They point the way. Did you catch that she called Jesus a mutation? Quote, now these are supposed to be the words that she got as she channeled the Spirit. Jesus reached total actualization of the Christ mind and was then given by God the power to help the rest of us reach that place within ourselves. Within ourselves. Hmm. Quote, the name of Jesus Christ as such is but a symbol, the Spirit told her, but it stands for love that is not of this world. It is a symbol that is safely used as a replacement for the many names of all the gods to which you pray. The Spirit also said this. The atonement is a final lesson that man need learn. For it teaches him that never having sinned, he has no need of salvation. And the spirit that she channeled said this, a slain Christ has no meaning. This is a problem. This is what Oprah Winfrey is pushing, one of the most influential Americans alive. A big problem with A Course in Miracles is that it uses Christianese. It uses Christian terminology and pseudo-biblical language. As a result, now here's a real problem. As a result, some churches have adopted A Course in Miracles. Some Baptist churches, some Methodist churches, and some Presbyterian churches have begun teaching A Course of Miracles in Sunday school classes and other special Bible studies. The church has been deceived. Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, verse 5, verses 4 through 5. He said, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Not only would they be influential, the Bible tells us, without the church, but within the church. Within the church, many will fall away in the last days, paying attention to deceitful spirits, the one that is behind A Course in Miracles, and doctrines of demons. 
Kenneth Wapnick, however you say his last name, that sounds weird, is a Jewish agnostic who later became a Catholic monk and then started a foundation for A Course in Miracles. And he says, him, okay, a Jewish agnostic later became a Catholic monk and then started getting into A Course in Miracles. He says, with his discernment, that the Course in Miracles and biblical Christianity are not compatible. Three reasons he gives. First, the Course teaches that God did not create the world. Second, the Course teaches that we are equally Christ. Jesus is not the only Son of God. Did you notice that Chopra was saying the same thing? Demons aren't real inventive, just influential. And third, the Course is clear in its teaching that Jesus did not suffer and die for man's sins. These, Chopra and Oprah, are two popular, very popular views of Jesus Christ. Influential in America, gaining traction to a certain degree because of the people that are endorsing these views. We have here in popular culture a different Jesus. We have a demonically inspired pseudo-Jesus in popular culture. And the problem is, yes, that, people, that should, uh, people outside the church are being deceived, but even a greater problem is that people that ought to know better are being deceived, people within the church. This is why I beg and I plead and I scream and I yell, read your Bibles. Amen. Study your Bible. <laughs> Become a student of Scripture. Uh, just a side note, as I've been exhorting you guys to do that, some of you have mentioned and you've come to me and you said, okay, how do we do it? I want to be a student in the Bible. What, what do I do? What resources do I grab a hold of? Number one, you just read the Bible. Number two, I will teach a course coming up shortly on how to study your Bible. But thirdly, every book that is in our book table, I have personally selected, other than the women's books. I got nothing to do with girls' books. But, but the other books... I have personally selected every single one of them. You're not going to find over there any fluffy Christian fiction. It's not there. We don't carry it. We don't care about it. Every single book that is there that I have selected will be helpful in you learning, understanding, discerning the scriptures, growing in the scriptures, understanding the times. Get one. Any one of them will help you. There's books on the cults that will educate you on how to deal with the cults. There's books on theology. Go get Rain Grudem's theology. Just begin to read it. There's a book by K. Arthur on how to study your Bible. There's a book by Roy Zook on how to interpret the Bible. There's Bible commentaries. There's stuff on eschatology. There's stuff on missions. It's all there. Become students. The resources are all here. You've been asking me, so I'm telling you. It's all here. I've gone to great lengths to make sure it's here. Do you see why it's so important that we read our Bibles in these last days? Because our brothers and our sisters are being deceived. And then those that we love outside the church are being deceived. Now, from two popular false views of Jesus, we move to two cultish false views of Jesus. First, Mormonism. Mormonism, also known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Gilbert W. Scharf is an apologist within the Mormon faith. An apologist... Uh, uh, Apology in this context here comes from the Greek word apologia. Apologia means to make a defense. It, an apologist is not one who's apologizing for what he believes. <laughs> we have books on apologetics. I study and teach apologetics. It doesn't mean I'm apologizing for the faith. It's from the Greek word apologia, meaning to defend. So this guy is a guy who defends the Mormon faith. 
And he says, quote, Latter-day Saints are Christians because they emphatically believe in Christ, use his name in their official church title, and believe in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, which testify repeatedly of the reality of Christ and the truth of his teachings. Mormons are Christians. Christians are those who accept Christ as their Savior. You will hear that within Mormonism all the time. They present themselves as main line Christians that believe in the biblical Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So then we've got to investigate that claim and say, do they have a biblical Jesus? Well, first of all, they believe that Jesus was created. We've studied at length that Jesus is the uncreated one. We believe in the preexistence of Jesus Christ. He always has been. They believe in a Jesus who was created. They believe that the Elohim spoken of in the Old Testament, Elohim, one of the Hebrew words for God, they believe that Elohim is a father God, a father God. They believe in many gods. But they believe that Elohim is a father God of this planet. And that Elohim had celestial sex and subsequently had offspring. The first of those spirit babies the Mormon church teaches was Jesus. The first, there were many others. One of the others was Lucifer. The Mormon church teaches that Lucifer is the brother of Jesus. And we all were subsequent spirit babies later on to be embodied of the father Elohim. But Jesus, they teach, was the firstborn of Elohim. Now you know why we spent two weeks talking about what it means in the Bible that Jesus is the firstborn. It doesn't mean what the Mormon Bible, uh, Mormon belief system is teaching. They believe that Jesus was a firstborn, and, and as a spirit son, he progressed in the spirit until he too became a god. Now, he is known in the Old Testament as Jehovah or Yahweh. Biblical Christianity teaches that Yahweh and Elohim are the same person, the God of Israel. And so that's what we see in the Old Testament, easily proven in the Old Testament. But they believe they're two different people. This father God, Elohim, and then this spirit baby who progressed and became Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament. Then what they believe happened is this. Elohim came down and had actual physical sex with Mary and Jehovah then became embodied as the man Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Elohim had actual physical sex with Mary and Jehovah became Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They also believe then that Jesus during his earthly years got married to both Martha and Mary. That he was a polygamist. Mormons do not pray to Jesus, nor do they worship Jesus. They don't think that he's the right God to worship. They believe that he's a God, but not the right God to pray to or to worship. They believe that he is only one of many Savior gods throughout the universe, and that he had to earn his own salvation before he could save anybody else. So in Mormonism, we have a created Jesus who needed to be saved, who's just one of many, who's a product of physical sex, and who himself was a polygamist. Do we have the same Jesus? 
And yet they say, Mormons are Christians. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We're talking about a different Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses in the Watchtower Society. Jehovah's Witnesses. We mentioned them several times over the last couple of weeks. We'll just clarify a few things now. The Watchtower Society is sort of the governing body, the legal body over the Jehovah's Witness movement. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus existed in three different stages, or you might say three different persons. They too believe that Jesus was created, but initially, initially he was created as Michael the Archangel. Okay? Michael the Archangel is created. And then, Michael the Archangel became Jesus of Nazareth. Michael the Archangel ceased to be. Jesus of Nazareth was born a man. And then they say that Jesus of Nazareth died upon the cross and was recreated as Michael the super archangel. So you have Michael the archangel, you have Jesus of Nazareth, and then Michael the super archangel. So when Jesus came into existence, Michael was no longer. And when Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected, he became a new Michael, and they say that Jesus Christ was no longer. So they don't believe in a pre-existent Jesus Christ. They don't believe that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. They believe that he was Michael, and then Jesus, and then Michael again. Contrast that with what we've been learning in the book of Hebrews. Now, they then teach that Jesus is dead. You must understand that. They teach that Jesus is dead. That today, only the new and improved Michael exists. When Jesus died, he was annihilated. As a human being, he was blotted out of existence. He just ceased to exist. What happened? Well, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, explains and says this. Well, the body of Jesus either dissolved into gases or is preserved somewhere in the grand memorial of God's love. Isn't that quaint? It either dissolved into gases or it's preserved somewhere in the grand memorial of God's love. What does that mean? <laughs> Contrast that with what the Bible says in Romans 1.4, that Jesus Christ was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Declared with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was not recreated as an angel. He was resurrected with power, declared the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And yet they say he wasn't bodily resurrected, but simply recreated. Now, it makes sense. If Jesus ceased to exist, as they say, he couldn't have been resurrected. What does that mean then for the faith according to the Bible? What does 1 Corinthians chapter 15 say? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And this is not talking about some spiritual pseudo-resurrection. This is talking about a literal, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses deny that he was resurrected from the dead. 
But realizing now within their doctrine that Jesus actually did appear to people after his resurrection, they saw that they had a problem. So when questioned about this, Charles Taze Russer, the, the founder, says, well, it, it was not the same body, but different bodies materialized for the occasions. That is the post-resurrection appearances of Christ. He appeared and disappeared as other angels. Do you see now why we're taking our time in Hebrews chapter 1, where it declares that Jesus is better than the angels? That he's worshipped by the angels? That he is the uncreated one? Jesus appeared as other angels? You know what that means in their theology? That they have a deceptive Jesus. He appeared as other angels, making his disciples believe that it was him. Got a real problem here. That's a different Jesus. And yet, when they knock on your door, and they will, they will tell you, we believe in the biblical Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We believe in the biblical Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. They are lying. They are mistaken. As is Mormonism, as is Oprah, as is Chopra. It is not the same Jesus. Now look what verse 8 says here. Verses 8 and 9, one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in all the New Testament about the identity of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 begins to read in Hebrews 1, But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee. Here we have one of the most amazing statements and important statements in all of Scripture, that Jesus is God eternal. And remember last week we looked at the fact that we had 11 excellencies of Jesus Christ that we had discerned in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll add two more excellencies today. Number 12 from verse 8 is that he is the eternal king, Jesus Christ. And number 13 from verses 8 and 9 is that he is the Lord of righteousness. The scriptures teach here that Jesus is the eternal king and he is the Lord of righteousness. And this flies in the face of those who would say that Jesus Christ is an acceptable name for any God you want to pray to or that he's a sub-God of some sort or that he's an angel of some sort or that he ceased to exist or anything else. We have here a quote from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Normally we go back there and look, but I'm going to let you do that for your homework this week. I just want to show you this. Notice what is happening here is that God is shown to be speaking to and about the Son. God is shown to be speaking to and about the Son. We either have here a God who talks to himself, that's a real psychological problem, or we have a Trinitarian perspective of who God is. God is shown in this passage to be speaking to the Son. But of the Son, he says, that he is the implied God in the context. But of the Son, God says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. God says to God, your throne is forever and ever. Just these two lines do incredible damage to both Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrine. Here's how. Number one, this does damage to Mormonism. 
The word for God used here in verse 8 in the original Hebrew of Psalm 45 verse 6 is the word Elohim. It's the word Elohim that's used in Psalm 45 verse 6. It's quoted here in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8. Now remember that in Mormon doctrine, Elohim is a God, but he's a father God who had celestial sex and then had the spirit baby Jehovah and then had physical sex with Mary and thus the physical man, Jesus Christ. But the word used here when it says thy throne, O God, is forever and ever is Elohim. Nobody can deny that this scripture here in Hebrews is directed toward the person of Jesus Christ. That here, Jesus Christ is being called Elohim. In the Christian and Jewish understanding, Elohim and Yahweh or Jehovah are one in the same in the Old Testament, and that is easily uh, showable. So you have the Mormon church saying, we're Christians who believe in the Bible and the biblical Jesus. And yet you have right here in Hebrews chapter 1 for everybody to see that Jesus is equated with Elohim of the Old Testament. So now their entire theology falls apart. They've got the wrong God. They've got the wrong identity. They've made a mistake at the very core of their theology. It's easily showable. It's easily discernible. In half of a verse carefully looked at, you have the whole of Mormon doctrine confounded because Jesus is called Elohim, and so he is. But Elohim is not some father God having celestial or physical sex. He's the God of Israel, Elohim, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. The phrase, secondly, is forever and ever speaking of his throne is obviously also speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, Here's where Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine runs into problem. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ has already come back. We're looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ, right? Amen. In fact, we can't wait for that gig. We're waiting for that. But the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus Christ came back in 1914. They first said that he was going to come back in 1874, but it didn't work out. So then they changed it to 1914. Now remember, they understand him as not having been physically resurrected, but having ceased to exist, dissolved into gases or preserved somewhere, and having been recreated as Michael the archangel. So it's not Jesus proper who comes back physically in their theology, as the Bible says he will do. Zechariah chapter 14 set his feet down on the Mount of Olives. They don't have a physical return. They have a, very convenient for them, a spiritual, invisible return. Because angels are spirits. And Jesus was recreated as Michael, the super archangel. And he came back in 1914 spiritually and invisibly. Really? Where is he? Jesus said this. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Just read it to you real quick. Jesus said in Matthew 24 about this very thing. He says in verse 25, Behold, I've told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go forth. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. In other words, if they say to you that it was a secret coming, do not believe them. He came in 1914, but it's on the DL. We're keeping it on the down low. It was a spiritual, invisible coming. 
Jesus already said, when they say that, don't believe them. And then he tells us what the second coming will be like. Verse 27 in Matthew 24. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. There'll be no mistaking it when Jesus comes again. He didn't come back in 1914. Now, according then to the Watchtower Society, since the return of Jesus in 1914, he became more important than he was previously. I understand the contradiction. You're listening to me and you're saying, wait, Jesus ceased to exist, but he came back in 1914? I know it's a problem. It's called Jehovah's Witness Doctrine. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it contradicts itself. I know. But they say since Jesus came back in 1914 that he's now more important than he was before. Really? How did he get more important? Well, because they say for 1,900 years he wasn't a king. Jesus wasn't a king. When he came back as Michael in 1914, then he claimed and obtained his kingdom, and as a result, he entered into an exalted status. Jesus wasn't a king? Jesus wasn't exalted until 1914? Hey, I'm really sorry. That's not what the Bible says. Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1, the end of verse 3 going into verse 4, that when Jesus had made purification of sins, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He is already exalted. He is already ruling and reigning. He is already and has always been the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They have a different Jesus. They have a Jesus who is an angel that didn't become a king until 1914. But they will knock on the door in your neighborhood and in mine and say, we believe in the Bible and a biblical Jesus. And all of chapter 1 is telling us that Jesus is better than the angels. Not like the Mormonism Jesus. That he has a more excellent name. Not that he appeared after the resurrection as other angels. And so verse 9 says, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee. Hath anointed thee. Speaking of Jesus Christ as being the Messiah. Therefore God, thy God. We have inter-Trinitarian communication taking place. Don't you love that phrase? Inter-Trinitarian communication. It's what happened every time Jesus Christ prayed in the Gospels. We have a very clear affirmation of not only the deity of Jesus Christ here, but the truth of the Trinity as well. What does it mean to be God? It means to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is the orthodox, biblical understanding of who God is. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one, one what, but three who's. One what, three who's. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One essence, three distinct persons. Therefore, the Father can communicate with the Son, and the Son can communicate with the Father, and the Son can communicate with the Spirit, and the Spirit can communicate to the Father. It is a perfect picture of community, which is what God has always been. That's why when somebody tells me that they're a Lone Ranger Christian, I immediately rebuke them. Well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to be with other Christians. I'm okay like this. No, you're not. 
The very design of God is such that he is in community and has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has always been holy communication, and so the body of Christ is to be. And we see here, clear example of that. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Here we have the Father calling Jesus Christ God. What more do you want? What other proof could you have? Oh, is Jesus Christ God? I wonder. Let's ask God. Yes, he's God. How much clearer can it be? At the baptism and at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, you had the Father saying, this is my son. And now you have him here saying, this is God. God the Father calling God the Son God. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Verse 10, again, speaking of Jesus, and thou, Lord, thou, Lord, Yahweh, in the beginning didst lay the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. So in verse 10, the Father calls the Son Lord. He's called him God. He's spoken of his throne, the anointed one, and now he calls him Lord. Thou, Lord, in the beginning to lay the foundations. And he says that Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth. Contrary to A Course in Miracles, which says that God did not, that Jesus did not. Here the truth is affirmed that Jesus is the creator of it all. We studied that in Hebrews 1.2. We talked about that in Colossians 1.16. And we see that in John 1.3, that Jesus is the creator of all things. Verse 11. They will perish, but thou remainest, and they will all become old as a garment. Now this contradicts again the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses by saying that creation will perish, but Jesus remains. Remember, they said that Jesus was annihilated, that he ceased to exist. The declaration of Scripture is that even creation will pass away, but Jesus Christ remains forever. By the way here, did you see the mention of the law of entropy? the second law of thermodynamics, that all things are winding down. Heaven and earth will pass away, he said. But Jesus Christ is eternal. Verse 12, And as a mantle thou wilt roll them up, as a garment they will also be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. He's the same. We can count on him. He never changes. He always has been. He always will be. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This destroys the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses that he went from Michael to Jesus to Michael. His years will never come to an end. And what this verse also says is that in the end, Jesus will roll up creation. And speaking of the new heaven and the new earth, I want you to read about it later this week in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. The promise of the new heaven and the new earth. That this, all that we see, all of this is temporal. It's fleeting. Jesus made it, and when he's done with it, he will roll it up. And part of his salvific work is that there is coming a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and we will always be with him there. It's part of the promise of our salvation. Verses 13 and 14. But to which of the angels has he, God the Father, ever said, 
Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? He can't be Michael the archangel. The Bible says right here, to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? You see, the destiny of Jesus Christ is to rule and reign forever. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to look there real quick, speaks of this. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 18, Paul the Apostle writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning. And he is coming again as a fulfillment of the kingdom. And he will rule and reign physically from earth. Don't get a wrong Jesus. Know who the right one is because there are many counterfeit Christs out there. Jesus said, in the last days, many will come in my name saying that I am he. This is why we have spent 15 Sundays studying chapter 1 because it reveals to us who Jesus is that he is better than the prophets that he is better than the angels that he is the son of God the heir of all things the sustainer of the universe the creator of the world the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of God's nature the high priest of perfection he's seated at the right hand of majesty on high having a more excellent name he is the one whom the angels worship he's the exalted king the Lord of righteousness the anointed one the eternal the unchanging one and the ultimate conqueror. Amen. That is the truth of Jesus Christ. The question is, is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Have you surrendered your life to him? Brothers and sisters, I've got news for you. You're sinners. So am I. We do things that are not just wrong before God. They are wicked in the sight of God. They may be fine before every person that you know. Every person may say, this is okay. The church may even say, this is okay. But Jesus Christ has a different standard, and he is the judge. And according to his standard, all of humanity has fallen short. 
But you see, he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, a substitutionary death, paying the price for my sin and for your sin. We owe God a debt because of our sin. And we couldn't pay it in and of ourselves. And because he's a righteous judge and not a cheater, he was going to judge every living person. He's not your grandpa. He's not your cheating uncle. He's not a judge that could be bribed. He's a righteous Lord of the universe. And every human will stand before him. And they will be judged unless they accept for themselves the price that Jesus paid upon the cross, that he was judged in our place. The judgment of God fell upon him that we might receive the grace of God and the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God and the gifts of God. But you've got to appropriate that for yourselves. You've got to claim that. You've got to say, I want that. You've got to come to God and confess that you're a sinner who is in need of saving. You cannot just intellectually ascend to the idea. You cannot ride to heaven on your grandmama's coattails. You cannot be a Sunday Christian. You cannot have just raise your hand one time. You can't just have a passing knowledge. You must come before Jesus who is living and risen and rules and reigns and confess that you are a sinner and have nothing good in yourself. And ask him to save you. And thank him for what he did upon the cross and ask him to be your Lord and your King. Have you done that? This is who Jesus Christ is. He loves you. He made you. He wants to save you. Do not deny him. And once you've been saved, do you worship him? I mean church, do you worship him? Because he is the Lord God Almighty. The angels never stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They never stop singing. You've got to work real hard to get the church to sing. There's something wrong in the church. We don't have a full picture of who Jesus is. The angels behold God, and so they never stop singing. The church is fat and fluffy and biblically illiterate. Other churches, not this one. fat and fluffy and biblically illiterate. Therefore, they do not have a right comprehension of who Christ is. Therefore, they do not worship him. If this is who he is from Hebrews chapter 1, then he is deserving of all of our attention. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not with your hands in your pockets. Not when you show up because the line was long at Starbucks. Not when you feel like it. But with every fiber of your being, he is God Almighty. And are we obeying him? He doesn't lay out options. He lays out commands. He doesn't give us suggestions. He tells us what to do. If this is really who Jesus is, the church can no longer blow him off. We've got to begin to obey him. If he's really Lord, then we've got to surrender our lives and begin to obey him in the big things and the minutia of our lives. And if this is really who Jesus Christ is, then the church has got to open up their mouths and start to tell people. We have got to get brave and bold and psycho crazy about telling people about Jesus Christ. We cannot be silent any longer. If this is really who Jesus is, 
If he's really who the Bible says he is, then we got to claim it from the mountaintops. we got to yell it from the rooftops. We must proclaim this truth. Hebrews chapter 1 has taught us that belief in Jesus Christ is the only unique Son of God and the only Savior of the world is right, reasonable, rational, historical, evidential, and defensible. A belief in Jesus Christ is the only unique Son of God and the only Savior of the world is right, reasonable, rational, historical, evidential, and defendable. So our salvation and all of its benefits are absolute. Stop wondering if you're forgiven. If you've asked him, you are forgiven. It is paid in full. Stop letting the devil kick you around like an old can. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a sin to hold against yourself what Jesus Christ forgave you of on the cross. Let it go. Washed white as snow, removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea. And forgive others. If this is really who Jesus is, then it's really him who said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless you forgive others, you yourself will not be forgiven. You were wronged. You were ripped off. You were abused. It's true. But Jesus Christ died upon the cross so you could be free from that. To free you from the bondage that that puts you in. He is the one who breaks the chains and sets the captives free. He loosens the bonds of wickedness. He breaks the yoke of the oppressor. Live in the freedom of Jesus Christ. Don't be bound by unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, wrath, malice any longer. If this is really who Jesus is, then he has set us free. Five thousand four hundred and seventeen people die every hour. That's seventy-five people every minute. That's one and one quarter person every single second. And Chopra, and Oprah, and the Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses are working incredibly hard to get people to hell. The church has got to get serious about getting people to heaven. Lord, we thank you for this word. You are the great and awesome God. You are the king. We thank you that you love us passionately, that you prove that love upon the cross, and that you live to pour that love into our hearts. Holy Spirit, help us to receive the love of God. Thank you for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that's removed the barriers. Thank you, Jesus, that you're a willing Savior who is able to save once and for all those who come near to you. Thank you for these awesome truths, Jesus. Jesus, we want to know you more and we want to live our lives in light of who you are. We ask that you'd help us, Lord, with those silly little things that have us bound up. Those little idiosyncrasies. Those little selfishnesses. Those little woe is me's. 
Help us, Lord. Set your people free. The church has been quiet too long, uneducated for too long. We've become too cold in our love, too lacking in our fervor. We've become biblically illiterate, void of the Holy Spirit, altogether lukewarm. Forgive your church and revive here in this place a remnant, O God. Revive here in this place a remnant. Raise up in the midst here in this community a righteous remnant. Men and women who are not afraid to speak the name of Jesus. Men and women that know their God and will attempt great exploits on his behalf in the last days. Men and women who, having been washed in the blood, are free to pursue your righteousness and your justice, your grace and your mercy, your causes and your mission in our homes, in our communities, in our nation, in our world. Raise up such men and women from here. Those of us that want to be such a man or a woman are going to stand now, Lord. Those of us that are going to pray this prayer for the Holy Spirit to come upon us because we really honestly want to serve Jesus Christ are going to stand. Sit down if you don't mean it. The Bible says do not make a rash vow in the house of God. Lord, my eyes are closed as is everyone else's, but you see the hearts of men and women. You are our king. And we come before you saying, we love you, Lord. But forgive our lack of love. We have faith, we believe you, Lord, but forgive our lack of faith. We serve you and we want to serve you, Lord, but forgive our selfishness our self-absorption. We obey you and we want to obey you, but forgive our waywardness and our rebellion. Have mercy on us, God. And Father, would you send upon us the power of the person of the Holy Spirit? Would you send upon us the power of the person of the Holy Spirit? We want to be your witnesses here in Carpinteria and Summerland and Ojai and Montecito and Ventura, and Goleta, and Oxnard, and beyond. We want to be your witnesses. We want to speak the name of Jesus. We want to lay our hands on the sick and see them healed in the name of Jesus. We want to come against demonic powers and principalities and see them flee at the name of Jesus. We want to see the captive set free. We want to see marriages healed. We want men and women to be married and to stay married. We want the fathers of the hearts to return to the fathers of the children. We want broken homes to be healed. We want addiction in our community broken. We want the power of pornography broken over our men. We want it broken, Lord. We want you to raise up righteous men. We want the marriage bed to be undefiled. We want to raise daughters and sons who are pure, who pursue purity, 
who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who know him. We don't want to be the Joshua generation who raised up a generation that did not know their God. We want to speak about you when we wake up, when we go to bed, when we sit at the table, when we walk down the street with our kids. Help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, come upon us. We need power to be your witnesses. We need power to obey. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here to save. And even this morning, some will call upon your name.